Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. I want to begin by saying that in this episode, I'm going to share a true story about some kids. Before any of you email me to ask, no, I am not talking about a situation that has happened to me or my children. I'm trying to speak as as an objective observer, but I know I have biases. And so some of those biases include that I tend to be uh, conservative, I tend to be libertarian, I want people to be able to do what they want to do, but that works, I understand, when people are going to do what is right in general. Some of my other biases is I've been living through some of this COVID-19 stuff in my practice with my patients and with my other clinicians that surround me in Omaha and Nebraska and, and South Dakota and other areas of, of, of the country. And so those are some biases that I'm approaching this with. And so I think those are important to point out. But let's start. One of the things I've always admired about really great clinicians is their ability to understand what they know to be true and at the same time have a healthy grasp on things they don't know. This translates into better patient communication and I think better overall patient care. As clinicians, we want to be confident in our diagnosis and project that confidence to the patient. Let's consider a patient who presents with vague history of recurrent pain that feels like they scratch their eye. Sometimes it happens when they wake up, but sometimes it occurs randomly throughout the day. When you evaluate that patient, you may see an irregular epithelium without infiltrates and very mild linear staining. To complicate the situation, they may also have a history of herpes simplex epithelial keratitis. And if you've seen enough ep- patients with recurrent corneal erosion, you know, depending on how long it's been since the erosion, patients can present with very mild corneal findings. And if you've seen enough patients with herpes simplex epithelial keratitis, you know that depending on how long the current flare-ups has been going on, patients can present with very mild corneal findings. My point is that while the answer may not be immediately clear, there may be one finding that helps guide us. Perhaps we settle on the most likely diagnosis of recurrent corneal erosion, because there was not a significant difference in corneal sensitivity between the eyes, and there's also not greater lysamine green staining beyond what is seen with fluorescein. It could be the case that the patient does have herpes, or it could be also the case that, to quote Dr. Bob Vandervoort, they are entitled to more than one disease, meaning that they have both. Now, let's assume that for the sake of this argument, that the correct diagnosis was recurrent corneal erosion. Now, the best clinicians I know would make the diagnosis of recurrent corneal erosion and communicate that to their patients with confidence, and at the same time communicate to the patient that there's also this sneaky virus that sometimes starts out very subtly and can mimic other diseases and then slowly presents itself. And while we don't think that's what you have now, we're going to be on the lookout for it during your follow-up exams or if things don't progress the way we expect them to. These clinicians are not arrogant in their diagnosis. They're also not timid in their approach. They know that what they know, and they also understand what they don't, and they make their patients aware of the things they're looking out for. I tell you this scenario because it seems to be completely contrary to what we've seen from many of the public voices, specifically from the CDC, about what we should be doing during COVID-19. Let's take Dr. Anthony Fauci, for example. When I watched him a month ago, I had a significant amount of confidence in his and the CDC's ability to manage this situation and that it would be based on good evidence. When he discussed this disease and our reaction collectively to it, 
he projected definitive confidence in our approach. But something still sat wrong with me, and I didn't fully understand what it was until more recently. It's the fact that there was so much certainty that they were right, and the radical changes and the radical social distancing is the absolute and only action, with no possibility that there may be other answers that would, be, would prevent as many hospitalizations and death in both the short and long term. My suspicion, at least my hope, is that they considered these other actions, but my recollection is that they didn't inform us that that was the case. What I heard from the CDC, among other things, was social distance, shut down any non-essential businesses, but face masks, those are unnecessary. And this was stated with high confidence, without any potential that they would change course over time. And now we see the CDC and Dr. Fauci are recommending face masks for the public, even cloth face masks, which we've been told in the past were ineffective. Now, this recommendation was made with just as much confidence and vigor as the prior no face mask recommendation. Now, I understand that we can be wrong as clinicians and they can be wrong as public health care professionals. And I understand that we may want to change course based on new information and evidence. and That's a good thing. But consider how the patient I described with recurrent coronal erosion would react if they asked you at the beginning when you made the initial diagnosis of recurrent coronal erosion if they could potentially have a herpetic infection and should they potentially take an antiviral. Let's say that rather than acknowledging the fact that the patient may have herpes, you dismiss them and told them that an antiviral was unnecessary. And yet four weeks later, you decide to tell them that they need to take the antiviral. I suspect that patient would lose some confidence in your ability to manage their ocular disease. Even if this one event didn't cause them to completely lose confidence, if time after time you present a diagnosis and treatment with high confidence in, in that diagnosis and treatment, only to backtrack later, I think their trust would erode. In this case, what we're seeing from the CDC is not even just backtracking, but it's a declaration that the new treatment is what's best without any consideration or acknowledgement that it is completely contrary to the initial treatment. This is the mindset I find myself in. I continue to listen to confident recommendations that seemingly become incorrect predictions based on inaccurate models. I'm not opposed to face masks or social distancing. The face mask issue is a microcosm of a larger point. What bothers me is what I see happening to our society from these seemingly extreme measures, which have been doled out by bureaucrats with unwavering confidence that they are correct and there is no definitive end in sight. I want to just talk about for a second what I've seen collectively across the country as well as locally in Nebraska and specifically in Omaha. We've seen mass unemployment as, uh, unemployment as businesses have attempted to respond to their inability to provide services. Nearly every single optometric practice is functioning at a trickle and businesses are trying and business owners, optometric business owners, are trying to find the best ways to safely serve their patients and communities while attempting to imp interpret vague guidance from the CDC on what urgent and emergent means. I'm now seeing well-intentioned practice owners doing the same thing. They're trying to use good intention to interpret vague guidelines regarding payment prote protection loans. In Omaha, we've seen our local government start by telling people to social distance. Then when specifically kids from Boys Town, I saw this recently, who live in the same house go to a local basketball court to get outside of their house. 
and then people call to complain that others are not social distancing. So what does the school do? They respond by taking the rims off the basketball hoops. Then the next day, the kids decide to go to a local park to play football, and those kids get the police called on them. This situation has occurred so frequently in Omaha that the mayor has decided to close all parks. I fear that sanity is starting to lose out because some people are assuming the worst in others. And rather than pulling up and attempting to have a conversation with people you don't agree with and explain why you, you think they should observe rules and regulations and, and what that means to you and what that may mean to the community, they simply shout them out down on social media or just call the police in person. Are we really going to fine people or put them in jail for going to a park or a beach? Are we really going to force our bureaucrats and politicians to restrict freedoms when we can't be sure that those restrictions will not be contrary to what they decide is best for us the next month or the next year? Are we going to secretly report on our neighbors? Now, I'm all about flattening the curve, but what will our faith in well-intentioned, overconfident bureaucrats achieve in the long run? I have to say, I don't know what's best here, and I've been following the recommendations out of good faith. But we have to remember that by all accounts, we will not have a vaccination for at least 12 to 18 months. And unless we're going to keep this up for that amount of time, enough of us will have to get this disease for herd immunity to occur. So there will have to be another change in direction, and people will have to contract and fight this virus individually as well as collectively. Now, I'm not the only one who wants to have this conversation. I'm seeing bits and pieces of this come up over time in different media outlets. But I'll finish this episode by reading an article published by an anonymous academic physician and researcher at an Ivy League institution in New York City. And I want to point out that the Federalist who published this article grants anonymity in cases where publishing an article could credibly threaten close personal relationships, their safety, or their jobs. And the Federalist verifies the identity identities of those who publish anonymously with them. So the article begins, COVID-19 is severe. There is no doubt about that. We are now also learning that it is not a matter of if, but when many of us will get a coronavirus. Whether we develop symptoms or not, our only hope is to flatten the curve, relieve stress on the medical system, and wait for a vaccine. So we isolate ourselves and stay at home. As a result, the economy is being devastated. Many people are out of work and unhappy, and we accept these inconveniences to allow a medical system to handle the many people who become infected. But what if I were to tell you that our current isolation strategies may actually result in more deaths from coronavirus itself? I'll explain. The only way we are going to beat COVID-19 is by developing something called herd immunity. Herd immunity basically means that once a certain percentage of the population develops immunity to a virus, the rest of the population will also be protected. That percentage varies, but is often around 60 to 70%. This is why we don't need to vaccinate 100% of people to eradicate or severely limit the spread of infectious disease. The media and policymakers seem to have accepted that we will depend on herd immunity to defeat COVID-19. If we had a vaccine, everything would be different. But since a vaccine is not available, we must wait for enough people to get exposed and develop immunity. In the meantime, we're being told to quarantine as much as possible so the medical system can deal with it, the many people who become infected. Simple, right? Unfortunately, it's more complicated than this. What the media and policymakers are not telling us is that the longer we delay the development of herd immunity, 
the more elderly or high-risk people will become infected and die, even if we are to maintain the quarantine indefinitely. Why is this the case? The reason is that only young and healthy people can contribute to herd immunity. Elderly and medically ill people generally do not contribute to herd immunity because their immune systems are not strong enough to develop an immune response. This is not new or breaking science. To illustrate what happens when you don't have herd immunity, look no further than the outbreaks we've had in areas where immunity has dipped below necessary levels. In 2019, there was a massive outbreak of measles in New York City for that reason. In 2014, a measles, out measles outbreak in Disneyland sent a number of cases to a 20-year high. With herd immunity, without herd immunity, where enough people have had the disease to avoid driving major, major outbreaks, future spikes will likely be much bigger. Indeed, the Imper Imperial College modeling says as much. Quote, once interventions are relaxed, infections begin to rise, resulting in a predicted larger peak e epidemic later in the year. The more successful a strategy is at temporary suppression, the larger the later epidemic is predicted to be in the absence of vaccination due to a lesser buildup of herd immunity, end quote. Importantly, in this report, the Imperial College COVID-19 response team's partial quarantine did not include isolating high-risk individuals or those infected from their households, which would be critical for a partial quarantine to work. In fact, their models, the elderly, in fact, in their models, the elderly and medically ill people had more contact with everyone in their household, except for the one scenario in which the cases are quarantined, which is not an adequate strategy by itself. This would greatly bias their findings in favor of a full quarantine. Therefore, if we stop the quarantine for all low-risk people now, herd immunity would likely develop more quickly. If we were to also keep the elderly and high-risk people isolated from everyone else during this time, including their own family members, which is what we call a partial quarantine, we would save countless lives. This strategy would also limit the stress in the medical system caused by the fear and panic induced by the full quarantine, a variable that has not been considered in most models and to which any physician on the front lines can attest, and there would be limited impact on the economy. Furthermore, Limiting isolation to only high-risk individuals in cases would be much more practical and likely to work since the more people need to be quarantined, the less effective the quarantine is. It would also still relieve much of the stress in the medical system since most of the severe outcomes occur in the elderly, according to the CDC. A partial quarantine would still cause some initial stress in the medical system since the overall number of young or healthy individuals who would contract COVID-19 will not change with either a full or partial quarantine. The vast majority of these cases would be mild, however. Therefore, there may be still a slightly higher use of the medical system up front if we move to a partial quarantine, as described herein. This could also lead to some deaths. Herein lies the, 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 the dilemma, or Sophie's choice, of dealing with COVID-19. A full quarantine will result in the deaths of more elderly and medically ill people because more of them will become infected. A partial quarantine will likely result in a greater number of mild infection in young and healthy individuals up front, but not in total. How many more elderly or medically ill people will die due to a full quarantine? It's hard to say, but a conservative estimate 
would be five to 10 times the number of young and healthy people who may die from a partial quarantine based on fatality rates published by the CDC. Fortunately, I'm not responsible for making policy. The article ends. So these are my thoughts. My hope is that we have more conversations with each other and with our politicians now and in the future in an effort to prevent going down a potentially treacherous road that may be worse than we think it is. I hope that we have ongoing conversations with each other to try to help continue guide us through this difficult time and lean into each other to try to find answers where we may not have them. If you found this episode valuable, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, and share it with your friends. At iCode Media, we believe in advancing the optometric profession by diving deep into eye care topics and providing actionable steps for our listeners and subscribers. Have a great week. Talk to you soon.